When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Our guests today are Kyle A. Thomas, Assistant Professor of Theater at Missouri State University, and Carol Symes, Professor of History, Theater, and Medieval Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And we'll be talking about their forthcoming book, The Play About the Antichrist, or Ludus de Anticristo. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Kyle and Carol. Good to be here. So to begin, can you just briefly tell us a little bit about the book? Yes. So this book uh, is, as you mentioned, uh, uh, titled after the so-called Ludus de Antichristo, the play about the Antichrist. This is a 12th century Latin play that deals with Christian eschatology, uh, battle scenes, political fights, um, all kinds of things going on. It's a very, very grand play in its scope. And so uh, we, I, I've been working on this play for over 10 years now. Carol um, started me out uh, with this play, and um, along the way, she produced an incredible English-language translation of the original Latin text. And so we thought we need to put all this together, all the work that we've done with this play over the decades, over the years, and um, make sure that we are are engaging with the scholarly community about this play because it's unfortunately not as well-studied as it should be. So it's not as well-studied as it should be? Why do you think that this text is important? Why should we study it more? Uh, well, there's a lot of reasons. So uh, one of the things is I think this is a qu- the, qu- the quintessential medieval Latin play. Um, so it's written in the 12th century, around 1160 or so. The manuscript that we have that has survived over the centuries comes from about 1186 or so, sometime in the 1180s. It comes from a little monastery in southern Germany in, in Bavaria uh, called Tegamsee. And um, at this monastery, you had uh, in the 12th century, a group of monks who, um, you know, based upon the social environment that they were living in, the, the constant work that they were doing in the monastic environment, living monastic life, engaging with the liturgy, engaging with uh, Christian theology, Christian eschatology, um, uh, running a cloister school on the, uh, on the grounds of the monastery, interacting with other monastic environments, monastic communities around them, as well as the political figures, both in Bavaria 
and in the Holy Roman Empire more lar uh, writ large, you have all of these interactions being put together into the dramatic work, into the plot uh, construction of the play, into the performative elements of the play, into the liturgies that are included in the play. It's a very, very dense work. But on its surface, it seems very, very simple. It's not the most exciting read in the whole world, to be honest with you. There's a lot of repeated uh, sections of the play, a lot of text and dialogue that's repeated consistently through the play. Um, there's descriptions of things that may be happening, like battle scenes and stuff like that, but we don't really get involved into that deeply in the world of the play um, through the text that we have. So scholars and historians have largely looked at this play and thought, well, it's interesting, but it's not interesting enough to really uh, put it within the canon, the accepted canon of medieval plays, particularly Latin medieval plays. Uh, there's a lot more focus on other plays, namely the ones from Benedict Boyan, uh, the Fleury playbook, and others that um, that for other reasons, you know, be they kind of the drama dramaturgical interest or uh, performative excitability and spectacle that have drawn scholars to those particular works. While the Ludusian de Cristo has been kind of just fallen to the wayside in a bit, but we're hoping that through this book that we will reinvigorate for scholars and historians an interest in place like this that uh, hopefully by providing some insight into how to unpack the uh, elements of this play that scholars will have greater interest in similar kinds of plays that have for a long time just been considered uh, dramatically uninteresting, theatrically uh, unimportant, and have largely been kind of confined to the margins of either medieval history, medieval studies, or even theater history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask both of you, actually. So you said you've been working on the play for a long time, working with the play for a long time. Uh, did you learn anything while working on the book that you found kind of surprising or unexpected, even though you've been working with it for for a bit? Uh, sure. Uh, actually, I'm going to put this one to Carol because uh, she worked really closely with the Latin text uh, uh, early on to produce the amazing translation that she did. Uh, and, I, and I'd love to have her insight into working with that text and what she drew from it. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, this is a play that I first encountered as a graduate student um, when I was a teaching fellow for one of my mentors, Eckhart Simon, who is a noted uh, historian of medieval theater. Um, and at that time, the, old, the, the English translation we were using was one of the things that I found to be a, a, an obstacle to the appreciation of the play. Um, the play is written in... Um, and a, a very powerful, accelerated metrical Latin, um, often in rhyming couplets or quatrains. None of this is captured in any of the existing English translations of the play. So, so much of the musicality and the linguistic power of the play, and indeed a lot of the humor of the play, um, is missing. So it became very clear to me that it was very hard to teach because my students were like, well, why should we even bother with this thing? Um, so working on the translation, recognizing the role that, as Kyle says, there's a lot of repetition in the play, but the repetition plays an extraordinarily important role in the politics of the play and in the, what the play is trying to teach its performers to do. Um, we discovered that there are sung elements, um, liturgical song borrowed from other sources embedded in the play that most translations and indeed editions never even attempted to identify. Mm. So um, those borrowed elements um, gesture toward 
particular moments in the liturgical year to particular um, uh, political um, events. So, for example, they one of these elements comes from a coronation ceremony and the politics of the play and its embeddedness in the world of mid-12th century Holy Roman Imperial and Italian and Papal politics is really, really important. Um, so it was really only in the act of sort of grappling with this um, kind of naughty Latin text and finding ways to not just translate the ideas, but the the verse and these liturgical elements that it really came alive for me. And I realized that not only are lackluster or indeed misleading translations hindering our appreciation of the play, but they're not even conveying what the play is doing. <laughs> Kyle, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I want to build on that with the, what you were saying about the liturgical moments in the play. And uh, you know, scholars of medieval theater, medieval drama will know the term liturgical drama and and how problematic, how, how difficult that term can be to work with in uh, looking at medieval Latin plays or, or medieval Latin documents that we're, we're wondering if they work in a dramatic function or some way. Um, and I think for me, the most exciting discovery, uh, thanks a lot to uh, Carol's translation, was one of the liturgical moments in the play, as Carol mentioned, is this coronation lit- liturgy that's taken from uh, England, from Old English sources, but it finds its way to Bavaria somehow. And um, instead of following the rubric, the format of the liturgy as described in the um, English documents, they actually invert it. So they change, there's all these stage directions that are describing the changes that need to be made in the way that that liturgy is to be performed. It's kind of backwards in the way that it's done, rather than having um, a king enter and go through all the the kind of gesture and, and pomp and circumstance and deferring almost to the officiant of the ceremony and thus the, the church as kind of the uh, spiritual authority over that king. You have this taking it the other way that anti, you know, rather than Antichrist coming in first to see himself crowned, he sends all his minions in to get the space prepared and make sure everybody's doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And he has a very violent and, and aggressive way of essentially taking over the ceremony and performing it for himself in a way that he, he crowns himself as this emperor of the world. And and so you're using a very uh, specific liturgical model and, and format. And and in one part of the play, there's a different liturgy that we get very little information about called the Alto Concilio. It's this profession, processional liturgy. We just get, oh, now we do this. That's it. That's all that's told uh, to us in the script. And then later on, you have all of these stage directions describing a completely different liturgy from a completely different place in the world for a completely different setting. And it's used in this really playful and interesting and very, very meaningful and charged way that whether you're at Tegancy or whether you're at any monastery, uh, particularly Benedictine monasteries in that part of the world, you would know right away that this is a very meaningful moment and that what is happening in this moment is meant to draw attention to the way Antichrist is acting and the kind of person that he is. Right. The kind of and, and the, the very fact he's he's kind of doing a violence to this liturgical mm-hmm. moment by turning it inside out. Um and the effect of this, you know, the effect of this um quotation of different well-known sources is it, it's like, you know, sampling in a rap song or, you know, any type of musical quotation 
that is meant to, you know, um, affirm the community's shared knowledge of this um, of this liturgical landscape. Right. But but it's also shocking because so many of these elements are then being inverted or turned inside out. Um, and that would have been audible. It would have been legible. It would have been clear in performance. And, you know, to the to the point that, you know, an audience in the know would be kind of like, you know, gasping, like, what what is going on here? What is what what is happening to these to these venerable um liturgical moments in the hands of Antichrist, who of course is there to to assert his hegemony over the entire created universe. That it, and it speaks to so sorry. No, no, go ahead. It's, well, it speaks to the the tonality of of the piece, the tonality of the dramatist, that they understand things like that, that they understand the way that musicality works in performance, the way the liturgy works in performance, and then they understand how to alter that to create a certain environment, a certain atmosphere in performance to get an affect out of their audience that they're looking to create. It's it's a it's a brilliant. It's it's the work of of every great dramatist that we study that they understand how the how to build that for themselves, not just in the text, but uh, how the text relates to that performance. And I, you know, I, I think Carol and I went back and forth on some analogies to use in the book. I think if I remember correctly, Carol, you came up with like it's like playing uh, Happy Birthday or something like that, but you're doing it with like a you know a full piece hardcore rock band at a children's. Um, birthday party like that's the kind of thing that it would it would be that shocking and or that maybe playful and humorous um, so the, these contrasts are put into the text that don't jump out to us as modern audiences right away but are are woven into the dramatic language that is well known and well understood between not only the community of monks of Tegernsey but various other communities of uh, monastic communities in and around that area that's yes. I think it's also important to emphasize and, and um, it, that when we talk about these as monastic communities, yes, they are cloistered Benedictine communities, mostly in the region of what is now Bavaria, some in Austria. Um, but these these were Tegelsay was an imperial monastery, uh, and it was deeply involved in what we call the investiture controversy, the ongoing struggle between the reformed papacy in Rome and uh, you know German princes and um, their aspirations and in this case Frederick Barbarossa Frederick the first um, who was the very first of these German princes to actually claim the title Holy Roman Emperor and therefore to essentially assert his own um, basically assert his own um, title of, of holy authority independent of the papacy so that the what's going on in these plays is not only telling us something about these monastic communities and their sophisticated dramaturgical processes but how they're using those that sophisticated dramaturgy in the service of these enormous imperial claims mm-hmm. that Barbarossa is making on the world stage uh, you know, in in real time, and and the very fact that the play is you know is is datable. I mean, we have very few Latin plays that actually we can date securely, um, whose whose manuscript copies are from the 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 same place in which the place was the play was composed, 
um, that this manuscript is only about a generation um, younger than the play. All of those things make this play super valuable as a historical artifact as well as a theatrical one. Yeah. What a fascinating, uh, I don't know, mixture too of of known things and unknown things. Because you mentioned that we you know we have we know a lot about this text that we don't get with other texts, so it's dated, and you know the manuscript is very uh, was produced very closely in time and place to where it was uh, performed and that kind of thing. Um, but then there's also these bits where they they mention a liturgy and we just don't know what that liturgy is, or like everybody at the time would have known, but now we don't. It's just fascinating. There's always that pull, isn't there, with medieval texts like between what we know and what we don't know and what we wish we knew more about <laughs> absolutely you know it's, oh, absolutely it, it's like it's like any other artifact of um of a particular time in place you know the analogy often used to my students is like imagine you know an episode of of snl in a thousand years yeah <laughs> you know which which is saturated with political satire and references to what's going on in the world and, you know, you could identify maybe a fraction of those things. That's yeah. that's the world that we're that we're dealing with when we talk about this particular play and so many other medieval artifacts like it. Yeah. And we deal with that in the in the way that we we talk about the performance aspects of the play as well. This this sense of unknowability that there are things that we will never be able to know about the medieval world. Um but in and 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 whether we should or shouldn't be trying to recreate those unknowables in performance is a big question I think a lot of practitioners have when it comes to what they should do in interpreting a medieval play for you know modern performance and modern audiences. Um, for me, I, I use Bertolt Brecht as a guide in the book and talk about how he can lead us to some strategies to understand what's at heart in this play. But also, you know, take from what we know about the medieval world and what we know about the contexts that surround this play and how this play is reaching out into its own world from its own time to do certain things and, and speak to certain audiences. We can take that information and, and bring it into a modern performance, but also in, 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 you know, bring into it our own social constructions and our own ver the differences between that world and our own. And bring that to life in the performance in ways that points to aspects about the medieval world, both knowable and unknowable, but also gives us the ability to comment on those aspects, the ability to reflect on them, and to make judgments about them. We have, there's uh, a character in the play, uh, Synagoga, who is uh, the allegorical representation of Judaism and, and the Jewish populations in in uh, Europe at that time, and. She's she's portrayed and described in the text in, in many of the same ways that we would find uh, her allegorical representation is in, in, in medieval art and medieval sculpture with a blindfold and this kind of broken and, and um, uh, you know, next to her counterpart, Ecclesia, the church, that she's kind of the, the, the smaller, more diminutive character. But that's not exactly true. The, the, tre the text, like, uh, she has a big dramatic arc through this play and she goes through a lot of change um some things about it make her a very sympathetic character someone who we deeply identify with but then there's also just the fact that she's treated and framed in ways that for us read is very anti-semitic and so we have to be able to come up with strategies to deal with those aspects of performance that are very different from our world today as they were in the medieval world 
and be able to provide a source for audiences to find kind of um, a sense of connection with the the perspective that we are putting on that particular character and their treatment within the performance. And I think we did some pretty good things in the production back in 2013. And I hope uh, our readers will find in this book uh, some pretty good strategies and methods that they could employ if they were to pick the play up and stage it themselves or any number of other medieval plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I, I really want to emphasize that because, you know, the this book is trying to do a number of different things at once. It's it's obviously presenting um, my, my new verse translation along with Kyle's new edition of the play, which includes all of these liturgical elements that are missed, that are, they're only quoted briefly in the text of the play. So we're providing all of this material that, that has never been provided before. Um, plus Kyle's historical analysis of the, the, the sort of particular moment out of which this, this particular political moment out of which this play is emerging. Um, the role that it would have played um, um, as a pedagogical tool within the audience, and that's something else. The manuscript in which it's included contains other materials for classroom instruction. It contains um, a, a, a life of Frederick Barbarossa. In other words, it's packaged together. It's almost like this, you know, um, one-stop shop textbook for the the young novices at Tegernsee or any of the other students at their monastery school. Um, but at the same time, it's really, you know, the purpose of creating what we hope to be an actor and audience friendly translation is because we want people to actually be able to teach and or perform this as an actual Germanic um, artifact. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Kyle has provided a whole section with, um, you know, commentary on the kinds of dramaturgical choices that he made as a director in our production in 2013, which was kind of a proof of concept for us that this could work. Um, um, but also, you know, inviting audiences to find their own, um, inviting you know, theater practitioners and actors to find their own ways in. And, you know, one of the major commonalities that I see being shared by the play in our own moment is the abuse of power, the use of fake news, the use of new social media to sow dissent. There's a, there are characters called um, the hypocrites, um, uh, who whose job it is to basically run around the performance space um, and convince people that all of the ridiculous claims that the Antichrist is making are actually true. Um, and so, I mean, I, I can't think of a better. I can't think of a play that better captures our own moment of bombastic political rhetoric and dangerous bombastic political rhetoric, um, which is in part facilitated, extended by unreliable news media. <laughs> um, that's exactly what the play is performing. And so, um, you know, and we played with that uh, uh, some in our production, but I think it's even more relevant um, in the world that we're living in now. Uh, yeah, it's even all tied. All that's even tied into eschatology and things like that. Even today, end of the world kind of scenarios. And exactly that sort of the, the the overblown, you know. And of course, you know, and where we are living in a world where there are racial eschatological issues, climate change, uh, a new land war in Europe. Um, uh, you know, you know what what are often framed as existential conflicts between. China as an, you know as an emerging global power 
Um, those are all the things that this play is dealing with. At the same time, though, we also know that there is a lot of fear-mongering and reference to these eschatological or seemingly existential events that are making it hard to deal with them in a kind of rational manner. And, you know, the play is all about, all about that. So it's really kind of, kind of like, in, in a way, sort of spooky, the, the, um, the way that this place speaks to our own particular moment, which, as you know, as Kyle was saying, is another proof that so far from being a kind of a, a dull, like, just weird, I mean, it's a weird play, um, but, but it's also quite brilliant dramaturgically. I mean, that, that, you know, it is not a play that deserves to be dismissed as a mere curiosity. It's a play that is deeply embedded in its own time, but because of its genius, is capable, like any other great work of, of theater, you know, we can think about the plays of Shakespeare, is capable of being removed from that embeddedness in its own time and repurposed. Yeah. I have to add to that the, the, yeah. the analog of, of social media in our world today and how the liturgy is the social media platform of its day. And they're and they're using it to kind of memeify, if I can invent a word here, um, these liturgical moments and tropes as a way to um, uh, make meaning out of things that that you know to actually just kind of uh, push back against the authority of people who are creating the liturgy and practicing the liturgy. And you know, oh, you know, you you, you see a bishop leading this processional. Well, we're going to put our um, our our little novice monk here at the front, and and they're going to be the person who leads us into through this professional it, it's very much this sense of okay you want the picture to look this way well okay we're actually gonna we're gonna do it our own way we're gonna put our own spin on it and and social media is that it's the way to push back against in our world today the narratives and the imagery and the um the the packaged idea that powers of the world want us to believe in in you know the way that they assert their power so the, this is which brilliant work that this dramatist, that our dramatists, plural, decided to take something so familiar to them and use it as as this discursive tool to be able to push back against uh, narratives, ideas, and theories that are being floated around in their own day. Yeah. Well, you both have sort of anticipated the final question that I like to end with, uh, which is based on the fact that publications by MIP employ innovative and interdisciplinary approaches to what it has meant to be human through the ages. So I usually like to ask people, what does this text teach us about, in this case, you know, what it meant to be human in, say, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Empire, or what it means to be human now? You both have done a really good job of, of sort of anticipating that question, but was there anything else you wanted to add? Yes, I, I really want to uh, focus on the fact that this is a product of a community not of a single individual. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it's led by an individual like, um, you know, the, the the teacher of the cloister school at Tegernsey. But I, I think that I think that what 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 makes this so significant, uh, both as, as a as a historical document of drama, but also important for narratives that we build around things like theater history. So as a theater scholar, I'm very concerned with um, how we teach our students and how we write about and study the history of our art in the Middle Ages is you know, pretty much just skipped over in a lot of our histories. It, it's it's the Greeks, the Romans, and then let's get to Shakespeare. Um, so for me, I, I really want to emphasize this 
in the importance of in the Middle Ages that it's communities that are producing these plays, and it's communities that that find in performance a a platform for um, discussion, for uh, engagement, for pushing back against authority, for coming together as a group. And 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 I know Carol has written about this in her scholarship a lot. And and while I was her graduate student uh, for those many years, I took a lot from that. And I think this is the a vital aspect of what we're trying to say in this work that we it, it takes communities to be able to put this stuff together and to ascribe meaning to what we're doing and why we're doing it. And we don't need fancy spaces to do them in like theaters that are purpose built. We don't need um, some major named famous playwright to come along and write a song or a script for us. We just need to use the tools around us. We need to use the people around us. And we need to use our common spaces that we interact with on a daily basis and our means of social engagement that we use every day as a way to build out of that some fantastic um, play that we can uh, not only find joy and, and excitement in, but also make meaningful conversation with. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm, I, I think I would also say that the play shows an extraordinary grasp and understanding of human nature in all of its capacities and all of its um, fallibilities. Um, you know, I mentioned that one of the major themes in the play is how can people be made to believe what is not true, um, even if they're people, even if they're people of great faith and power. Um, and you know, one of the most remarkable moments in the play, which is described very carefully in the Latin stage directions, is uh, a series of fake miracles which the Antichrist works in order to convince people of his divinity, and um, you know, including raising from the dead a man pretending to have been killed in battle. So this raises all sorts of fascinating questions for the actor and director, like how how. How do you make it obvious to the audience that this guy is just pretending? You know, he's lying there. He kind of like gets up and winks at you or something like that. <laughs> um, but but it's it's the, it's 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 this series of miracles which finally convinces kind of that the hero of the play, who is not the Antichrist, the hero of the play is the German Emperor hmm. uh, or the King of the Teutons, as he's called in the play, um, who is represented as this tremendous military. Uh, genius and uh, whose people love him and who is deeply, uh, deeply faithful, pious human being. But he himself is duped by these fake miracles into allowing the Antichrist to basically take over. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, it's that the play's staging of rules, excuse it's it's the play's staging of that vulnerability um, and and uh, that I find truly extraordinary. Um, and the fact that you would have a character who would be able to be so commanding and so important and then succumb precisely because of his faith and piety to this deep fake. Um, again, is amazing for the 12th century, but got to be one of the major problems of our own time as we become technologically more and more capable mm -hmm. of producing that type of convincing imposture, um, which is what the Antichrist stands for. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. This was a great conversation. It'll be really enjoyable for our, our uh, audience. <laughs> um, 
So just to remind everyone, the, the book is The Play About the Antichrist, Ludus de Antichristo. Uh, I'll put a link to information about the book in the details below. So thank you both so much for, for this discussion. It was really fun. And, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing the book in person. Thanks so much, Becky. It was great to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Thank you.